Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. Hi, my name is Lodine, and I am a law student. It does appear that management is more concerned with making money than in actually educating the students. This is based on my experience of being in a private institute Uh, there was no such thing as academic exclusion. This meant that uh, your failure would be the school's financial gain uh, as long as you would decide to continue with your studies until obtaining your degree. Another example is that access was was granted through a biometric system where if your fees were not up to date, you would not be allowed access. This is a setup in most uh, private institutes that I know of, and maybe even some universities. In today's episode, our theme is the so-called marketization of universities. This is a term that has been brought up a lot in many discussions about the future of higher education, but what does it actually mean? To help us think through this, our guest today is Salim Valley, an Associate Professor in Education at the University of Johannesburg, and the Director of the Center for Education Rights and Transformation, also at UJ. Salim has published widely on the topic of higher education in South Africa. Back in 2007, he wrote a paper titled Higher Education in South Africa, Market Mill or Public Good? He's authored and co-authored a number of other papers and chapters on similar topics since then. We'll include some links on the episode note on our website. Hello and welcome to Professor Salim Valley. Thank you so much for joining us on today's discussion. All right. Perhaps we could kick off with your views on a really pressing topic that I think everyone who's involved in higher education at the moment is thinking about. What do we mean or what is meant by the idea of marketization of higher education? This term's been thrown about quite a lot in public discourse and debate, and I think we need a bit of clarity on, on what it means. Well, I think, firstly, it's really important to understand that the kind of demands made by students last year, you know, came at the back of many years of struggle around the issue of the high cost of education. And it's very clear that for the few students from working class communities who make it to tertiary education, life really is a constant struggle. Of course, it's a strong struggle generally for all students, even from uh, middle-class families, but particularly for those from working-class families. The financial aid scheme, as we know, and the state has had its own task teams, and they've shown quite conclusively that it's woefully uh, inadequate, 
that for a number of students, um, you know, they are financially excluded. And the figure that is bandied around about only 50% of students complete their diplomas or degrees is partially a result of that situation. And clearly, public higher education costs have been rising every year, and it's put tremendous pressure on students and their families uh, to confront these rising costs uh, in a situation where the state subsidies to universities have been decreasing over the years and relative to other countries. In fact, the state subsidy to higher education institutions in South Africa is lower than the Africa-wide average. So in this worsening situation, where resources and funding allocated to higher education really can't meet the demand for access, we have bigger class sizes. While the number of students increase, the staff complement doesn't increase. And this clearly affects the quality of education. Uh, so the result is a combination of uh, shrinking space for new students, massive exclusions on a financial basis uh, for those who cannot keep up with their payment, payment when fees increase, and generally just a highly stress-alienating environment. We have situations in a number of universities where even some loan recipients where their fees might be covered by NASFAS go hungry because they don't have any money and very little support or live in slum-like uh, conditions. So that's really a situation that has existed for a long time now. I think it's important to note that in the 90s, we had a whole series of white papers of the National Commission on Higher Education. And clearly, that did not deal with the expansion uh, of numbers of students and the financial aid scheme that was put in place clearly is not doing what it has to do adequately. Now, just on the marketization and, and uh, privatization of education, I think Unfortunately, like many countries, at the behest of corporate globalization, we have also adopted a corporate modeled profit protocol university. I think it, you know, it has to be said at the outset that we were very occupied with confronting the imbalances of apartheid or the uh, racial imagination of our erstwhile apartheid rulers. So we had mergers, etc. And we talked about transformation in very superficial terms, changing the demography. And it is only since last year that a number of substantial issues around the curriculum, but also the kind of university we want, whether it should be a, a university for the public good or whether it should be a corporate modeled profit protocol university. Now, the latter does not, will not, and cannot address the inequalities we've inherited from the apartheid years. Uh, so the whole focus on productivity and endowments, it fosters or this kind of market model of a university. You know, we had 
a conference uh, many years ago which talked about the dangers. The conference was titled From Ivory Tower to Market Mole. We tried to say that a particular understanding of transformation that is in total opposition to the role that universities are meant to play in addressing the wide range of socioeconomic problems in our country. And it can't do that. So this corporate model university reflects a state mission that advances really the neoliberal project and postpones indefinitely really the social and political transformation of the country. And, and, and this uh, is a waste of our talent. It's not going to address the issues because the idea of higher education as a public good is surrendered to the logic of the bottom line. So can we pause on that point for, for a second? Because I think for, for those who might be listening, it's understood that most of the main universities in South Africa are public institutions in that they are funded to an extent by the state and their intention is to kind of serve some kind of public good. So could you explain in a little more detail what it means when an institution like that becomes corporatized or starts to function around principles that might be associated with profit-driven corporations? Because some listeners might not understand what that actually looks like on the ground. So, you know, what does a privatized university look like? How does it function in a way that's different to the public project that you've been hinting at so far? Well, very clearly, uh, uh, you know, if a university is run along corporate lines, there's pressure to pursue entrepreneurial activities through third stream income ventures. And it's done in a particular bureaucratic style uh, that certain programs and disciplines receive much more support. What universities are forced to do because of the declining allocation of funds from the state is rely on tuition fees and rely on third stream income. So what we see is uh, instead of being, instead of individual social agency, we have universities that are driven through market driven notions, fiscal parsimony, corporate values, a particular hierarchy where the top managers receive huge salaries and all the rest very little. It's in line with this new knowledge economy. It relies on an assumption that the university, the market model, is an appropriate model for education. We also have the perverse pursuit of rankings, this league table of competitiveness and learning that addresses the self in relation to public life, to social responsibility, to democratic citizenship is marginalized in favor of a culture of commercialization. The relevance of academic work, for example, is linked to productivity, is measured in peer-reviewed journal publication and associated rating scales run by multinational corporations. So what we have uh, is that the interests 
of our society, our developmental goals, critical citizenry, the role a university has to play is sacrifice on this altar of commercialization. If I can jump in, you mentioned earlier that you, you see one of the root causes or one of the factors leading to the corporatization or marketization of South African universities in particular as the kind of the, the onward march of corporate globalization. So I wondered if you could comment a little bit more on that, because I think all of the things that you've described, the increased competitiveness, the pressure to publish in specific ways, the pressure to raise funding, we see these things happening at universities around the world. Can we, as a South African higher education community, can we escape those pressures? And should we only be inward looking and, and concerned only with the needs of our own society? Or should we also be trying to find ways to link in with what's happening globally so that we don't fall behind? You know, these struggles occur globally. And the idea of a university uh, as academic capitalism has not always been the dominant idea. This changed after a while, and it changed with the introduction of uh, neoliberal regimes. I mean, Helmut Kohl, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher uh, introduced this idea. And prior to that, the idea of a state-subsidized higher education for the public good was understood uh, as important. A well-educated population is socially beneficial. Education is a fundamental right. It cannot be commodified and sold. Students are not just consumers. They are part of society with a particular mission that will benefit societies. What we have now, not only in South Africa, but globally, is a situation which perpetuates inequalities, and particularly in our country with our recent past, the issues that we were meant to confront from 1994 cannot be confronted if we see education as a commodity and not education as a public good. I mean, the shift came at a particular point, and the shift came when neoliberalism was introduced and user fees, the attendant user fees. So you have the reduced role of the state, the transferring, uh, the burden of costs to individuals and, and families and communities. Instead of talking about the importance of universities, you know, the World Bank, for example, during the structural adjustment programs in Africa, insisted that higher education is not a priority. Uh, for Africa. And this kind of uh, regime we have perpetuates that particular view, uh, as if university is just for an elite, because this will then reproduce the inequality in society. And I mean, we're talking about education, but this runs through all the social sectors. And it's important to understand that the idea of free quality public education is even part of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And that's something that has been established many, many decades ago. So I think the question you pose, it's important because the relationship of universal free education must be seen in relationship to political system, not here, but elsewhere as well. It's an approach to the public good of education, which is not just 
pro-poor are limited by constitutionalism, but rather it seeks to problematize the very issues which we tend to ignore or avoid until last year, of course. The issue of social class, of racism, of gender discrimination, because all of this has to do with social relations. It's, it's our assumptions of society as well as how we see education. I think you're, you're right. You know, to some extent, what the student movement of 2015 and beyond really, I think, achieved was making everyone sit up and listen and think about education as a social issue and to raise it almost as an issue of development. So I wanted to ask your thoughts on that. So if higher education is, and I agree with you, it is a, a public good, it's a human right, it's something to which all academically deserving students and people deserve access. How do we go about providing that in the context of a state that has not shown much commitment to funding that project? And I mean the project of education broadly. Primary and secondary education is also in a little bit of crisis. How then can higher education be properly funded by a state that is trusted by the public in such a way as to allow it to transform from this kind of privatized, commodity-driven model to something that we see as more socially relevant and more able to help an entire society progress and develop and become more equal? Even in capitalist societies, there are a number of countries where you have free education. It doesn't mean we have to wait until uh, the socialist dawn or anything like that. There are some countries which have reversed the trend. If you look at Germany, it's free now. It wasn't free for a while after Helmut Kohl. Uh, It's really just a spectacular failure of imagination not to consider uh, possible alternatives. Uh, I mean, it's it's fascinating to me to hear uh, during the primaries in the U.S. the debate between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, where Hillary Clinton used very similar arguments to some of our politicians and vice chancellors when she said. You know, if you're talking about free education, you're giving the rich and the elite a free ride. Uh, Are you saying that the daughters of Trump must have free education? (laughs) But they miss the point. The point is that it's not going to be free for them. The taxation system can be used. So Bernie Sanders' repost was uh, a very well thought through transactional tax on all Wall Street transactions. The user fees fees are not the only or most efficient or even most fair way of ensuring that those who can pay do pay. And increasingly, we have research that shows that only a minority of the super-rich in our country actually pay tax or sufficient tax. I mean, SARS... Has uh, gives a figure of about 4,200 individuals with an annual income of 5 million rand or more. But there are other uh, groups, a few, who estimate that actually we have more than 4,200. We have close to 50,000 
what they call high net worth individuals with an annual income of more than 7 million rand or assets of more than 70 million rand. And if we just tax 10,000 of these 50,000 individuals, it would yield 37 billion rand in extra tax revenue each year. That's just one example. We have a phenomenon of capital flight that runs into the trillions. We have, and the Panama Papers has exposed this, how people don't pay the tax. You know, we have transfer price fixing and a whole lot of illicit ways of dodging tax. So the argument that we don't have enough money is really false. So even within the parameters of the system and the society run on a profit model and the market model, we can change it. Of course, our point and the point we make that, uh, uh, and, and you're right, we need to problematize the relationship between state and global capitalism in relationship to a society that seeks inclusive social relations not based on privilege and exploitative categories or the effects of racism and class. So we do need to look at that as well. But what we are arguing is that within the parameters of our society today, there are alternatives, which we think it's just a failure of imagination not to pursue. And in fact, the preamble of our constitution talks about fulfilling the potential of each individual. And we are not doing that. In, in primary, secondary school, early childhood development, the most important phase, these things are linked. You know, that should be free and it should be quality education. A lot of the problems we face in higher education is because of those problems in earlier years. And we should not delink we struggle very hard. I was involved in many education organizations that even prior to 1994, the democratic movement was clear. Education has to be free. The Freedom Charter speaks about it as well. But what we had after 1994, international consultants normally linked to the World Bank or the IMF that started speaking about user fees. And I think this just is wasteful, it's wrong, it violates the idea, the important notion of education as a public good, and it perpetuates inequalities, and really it impoverishes our society. But I, I worry about the question of political will. I mean, I agree with you, and a couple of episodes back, we had a very enlightening conversation with Dick Forslund about how taxation could be reorganized in order to fund quality public free education. But what worries me is the question of political will. If we can't even deliver textbooks to our school children, how are we going to, as a, as a nation, as a, as a community, how are we going to implement an entirely transformed system of higher education? What do you think it will take in order for us to move away from this marketized model that depends on students paying fees into a more publicly managed model? And do you think our current political system has what it takes in order to do that in a way that is truly democratic? That's precisely why some of us believe that the struggle for uh, quality 
public free education is linked to political struggle. It's linked to the agency of our communities. It's linked to holding the state accountable and quite clearly the present state and the interests it represents is not up for the task. So, you know, it's not an easy answer. It means that, that we need to do these things in tandem. And I don't think one can separate uh, those two areas. So you think that the question of education is going to be an important one in the next few years, politically speaking, in this country in specific? Absolutely. I think that uh, it's one of those fault lines like health, like housing, that speaks to the nature of the state, uh, speaks to whose interests besides the rhetoric we are accustomed to. I mean, every preamble, I mean, the preambles of most of our policy documents speak to addressing the imbalances of the past. But we can't do that in a society like this, which has such high inequality and the gap between the 1%, if you will, or really two families that own 50% of the wealth. In such a society, these issues and these contradictions will come up again and again. So if we can move now from these kind of big meta macro issues, which are really shaping, I guess, the field within which academics and uh, university staff are working, to reflecting a bit more on how the marketization of universities may have an impact on the day-to-day working lives of academic staff. I think I speak for every colleague I've ever met and known that, you know, we all care very much about our students. We want them to do well. We want them to achieve. We want to do our jobs well, to teach well, to do our research well. Yet there are these increasing pressures that come from a marketized institution that really influence our day-to-day jobs, our ability to do our jobs well. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on how marketization of higher education impacts on the daily working life of an academic staff member from your own experience or from your your observations of colleagues and institutions that you've worked in? Well, Mahita, we know that the impact of this model is profound. I mean, the division, for example, between uh, lecturers with huge class sizes and researchers, for example. Research brings in third stream income. Lecturers are not those who deal with first-year students, etc., are in a sense the bottom of the pile. They're not appropriately remunerated, supported, quite often not given professional autonomy. Uh, they do need additional support in top, on top of, of course, the problem, the perennial problem of reducing class sizes. We have the effects of corporatization, running educational institutions as business firms. You know, there's a number of accompanying policies, the performance management regime, the kind of top-down devolution, competition at all levels, the output measuring, all of these things are very prevalent in our institutions. The way quantity is privileged over 
quality, for example, the support given to some disciplines and programs which have an edge in the marketplace, not that they are not important, but at the cost of programs which are seen as ornamental, those that directly deal with social questions or social justice are not supported as much as they should be supported. There's an emphasis on postgraduate students instead of first-year students, on measures and programs and facilities that would support students in terms of their writing and, and, and many other psychological kind of support, that is not emphasized. And in fact, it's the first, uh, those kind of programs are the first to go when there's a, a, a crunch with, with money. So it affects our daily learning and teaching in, in very profound ways. And in many instances, it's led to the demoralization of lecturing staff. It's increased administrative burdens. It's increased pressure to push students through at all costs without the requisite uh, support and a whole lot of other negative problems uh, that exist. There's also a very crucial issue that we in metropolitan areas often uh, forget, much to the chagrin of my colleagues in rural areas, in universities, you know, that cater for the bulk of working class students, poor black students that are situated in the former homelands or rural areas. And the inequalities between universities are profound. There's a stratification and segmentation of universities into different tiers. And some of them, some of the, uh, well, akin to uh, Ivy League universities in our country, the four or five, are the ones that get the bulk of the funding. And I think because, you know, they have access to the endowments, the bequests, the third stream income more than other universities. So corporatization and marketization, these are not just abstract concepts. They affect us very profoundly. Yes, yes, they do. I wanted to, to ask you your vision of a, of a public university. What, what would it look like? Could you kind of describe to us how, if we were to achieve all of the political change that we hope for over the next few years, what would a truly public university in South Africa look like? How would it function? Well, as opposed to a corporatized university, a public university would be genuinely collegial instead of this competitive nature. It would be shared governance instead of a kind of top-down managerial hierarchy. It will be community and curiosity driven for the public interest. Uh, that's the research instead of in a corporatized university, uh, market driven, corporate, often, often in many of our disciplines, corporate controlled uh, research and development. And of course, there are nuances. Quite often, it's a struggle to maintain because of our legacy, there are programs, there are centers, there are institutes that do what is necessary for our country, but many of them are at risk 
they are not supported as much as they should be. There should be a genuinely free generation and exchange of ideas instead of the kind of private knowledge, intellectual property, the paywalling <laughs> of journal articles. It should be collaborative instead of competitive. And of course, financially accessible to our community instead of this notion of serving clients or customers. Uh, and of course, finally, really, I can say it should be properly funded and it should be independent instead of a situation where it is underfunded and the government and the, the Department of Higher Education's own investigation has shown that relative to other, including African countries and many countries in the global south, it is really underfunded. And, and quite often universities are compromised. Their vision and mission statements are compromised by particular kinds of fundraising activities and donor pressure. It sounds wonderful. It sounds like a idealistic world in which I'd really, really like to live instead of the one <laughs> that we do live in. There have been a yeah. number of universities in a number of countries that attempt to do this to a greater or lesser extent. But the trajectory we are taking takes us further away from it. And it's not, you can... Um, you know, there is this notion of being pragmatic. And, and I'm afraid that cuts off and prevents us seeking feasible and realistic alternatives. What advice would you give to colleagues who are deep in the academic drudgery of large course teaching doing their research at the same time, sitting on committees, juggling a million balls, trying to, to keep on top of everything, but who also kind of yearn for the type of university you've described. How, how would you advise them to contribute in however large or small a way towards that goal? I think you've, you've really put your finger on it about agency. And that while that exists, there are a whole range of issues. You've pointed to some of them that prevent colleagues from becoming involved in conceptualizing, understanding, and struggling for this different vision, this vision of a university as it should be. I mean, my only advice is that we should get organized, that we should, in concert with other constituencies at the university and the community, uh, the collegium out there, uh, become organized. And uh, again, we are finding many of us who are prepared to speak to these issues. We find our colleagues might agree with us in private, but in fact are intimidated that we have a very, very worrying situation today, that dissenting voices are seen as mavericks, the troublemakers and agitators of an era we thought we left behind, that it's true that more and more of our universities are becoming militarized, pan-optical places. As struggles for a different kind of vision is actually, if not actively but indirectly discouraged. So we need to create spaces, we need agency, we need to organize ourselves as we stand with each other. And I need to say that 
the upheavals last year and continuing into this year are quite messy. There are many things we don't agree with. And certainly violence is not the solution. But, you know, it's this expression, for a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So the resort to punitive measures, to even, you know, security measures might curtail some of the excesses, but these problems will arise again later on. It's not the way to go. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult question to respond to, uh, but there are no easy answers. So if we keep talking to one another, understanding, creating spaces for debate, Perhaps we can eventually develop these kinds of networks of transformation that that you hinted at. Absolutely. And even when we talk about the curriculum, quite often universities, because of the events, want to control and direct this. And any initiative from the ground that challenges this needs to be stamped out. And I think that strangles creativity and an alternative vision. Why can't we have assemblies for every discipline and every program and let people debate what is suited for our society at this point in time. An open debate, however uncomfortable and quite often crude some of the points of view are. But there is no other way to deal with this. And I think using a repression or the security option in all instances is the wrong way to go. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your your time, your thoughtful comments, your um, warnings, and sometimes <laughs> sometimes quite uh, inspiring ideas about where we're going. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Mahita. It's a pleasure. We've covered a lot of ground in today's discussion. I must say, I'm personally quite inspired by the vision of a non-marketized university, and I hope that we can all work together to realize that vision in the best interests of our students and the happiness of staff who work at universities, not to mention the overall good of our shared societies. What do you think? Is it impossible to escape corporate values in our universities, and should we find pragmatic ways to work within the system? Or should we come together to resist? Before we go, let's hear what a student thinks about whether universities should be run like businesses. Hi, my name is Nkensani and I am studying an honours in Publishing Studies at WITS. And I think it makes sense that for a university to run there needs to be money because you need to pay the staff at all levels and you need to provide resources to the students. Um, and you can also say that a university is providing a service, a quality service, and you do pay for quality and you do pay for a service. However, a university cannot be run for profits. It can't be one of those things where you exclude anybody who's not contributing to the bottom line or just who doesn't make sense for the numbers because that's not the main activity of a university. It's not to make money, it's it's education. The problem is when students are treated more like customers or investors instead of stakeholders in a um, sort of collaborative process and so even though there may be a lot of arguments that are for running um, universities like businesses I, I just don't think it's right it doesn't make sense to me 
The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mehita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungile Mbenyane. Thanks to Professor Salim Valley, Claudine and Kinsani for their time, as well as Pervez Khan for his input and David Hornsby for his moral support. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles.